turn to Mark chapter 9 this morning. We are continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we are going to get to one of the pivotal moments in the book of Mark. As I've told you before, Mark is sort of making a beeline toward the cross. But he wants to make sure before he gets there, before he tells you about the Passion Week of Christ and the ultimate sacrifice of Christ that Steve read this morning during our scripture and prayer, before Christ comes and fulfills the Isaiah prophecies about the one who would die and have our transgressions laid on him, before Mark gets to that, he wants to make sure that you know who it is that's hanging on the cross. Because during the time of, well, all the way back to the Medo-Persians and then through the time of the Greeks and the Romans, crucifixion was a fairly common form of punishment. The Romans just perfected it because they felt like the Medes and the Persians hadn't made it painful enough. And so the Romans perfected the art of the crucifixion and lots and lots of people were crucified. Mark wants you to know who it is that ended up in the ignominious position that they were sacrificed on a Roman cross. And today he's really going to bear down on that. He's going to tell you about the transfiguration of Christ, the metamorphosis of Christ, where they were able to look beyond just the human earthly representation of Christ and actually see who he was in his glory. But before he's able to tell you that, he tells you this very interesting thing that Jesus said, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That verse, that statement by Jesus has caused all kinds of speculation and consternation through the years. Some folk have said, if they're particularly cynical, they'll say, well, the Bible's not true, and you can prove it from this verse right here. Because Jesus said to his apostles, some of you won't die till you see the kingdom of God coming in its power. They all died. The kingdom didn't happen. Bible's not true. There you go. Other folk, in an attempt to protect God's reputation, and keep the continuity of the Bible and say the Bible is still honest, have constructed what's known as preterist theology. Are you familiar with the word preterist theology? It's the right theology. It's the correct theology, according to some people in this room, who we will later tar and feather in the parking lot. The the preterist theology, it just means things that are past. They say that everything that is prophesied in Scripture culminated at 70 AD, that when the Roman army behind Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, that that was actually the return of Christ, since Christ had said that he was going to return and that he was going to return in judgment. They say that is the time of the day of the Lord, the time of the great tribulation, and that return of Christ was seen by some of his apostles thereby satisfying the promise of this verse that Jesus said some would still be alive when he returned and they'd see the power of the kingdom. The kingdom, they say, was inaugurated at 70 AD and then the kingdom, such as it is, 
became the church. So we would be living in the kingdom now. That's known as full preterism. There are some folks who call themselves partial preterists who say that there is still one thing waiting to be accomplished, one prophecy that hasn't been accomplished yet, and that is the ultimate return of Christ. But they would say everything else that the Bible predicts occurred as of 70 AD. Okay, that's another way that people handle this. When you look at it textually, you'll notice that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptics, agree that Jesus said this. And then all three, even though as you read them, they don't share a chronology. In other words, even though they will differ about what order of events took place during Jesus' ministry. At this moment, they all three line up. At this moment, they all three agree and they all quote this promise. And then instantly, they all three go to the Mount of Transfiguration. They all three go right to that as if there is a connection between these two things in the apostolic mind. That they understand Christ's statement to be somehow satisfied in the transfiguration. And that is a very common way that people understand and explain it in many commentaries. I would also argue that Jesus, when he said this, could have been referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. Certainly, like I said, the apostles who wrote the New Testament see a direct connection between that statement and the Mount of Transfiguration. But there is also another reality, which is that John, who is one of the apostles who was standing here, John, who went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, who actually saw Christ transfigured, John outlived the other apostles went to the Isle of Patmos under the reign of Domitian. That would have put him on the Isle of Patmos, 92, 96 AD, somewhere in there. And while he was on the island of Patmos, he received the revelation that we all now call the book of the Revelation. And in that revelation and in that series of visions, which he describes as seeing things, I saw this, then I saw this. He saw the kingdom coming in its fullness and in its glory. He saw Revelation 20. He saw the establishment of the kingdom coming. He saw the new Jerusalem. He saw all these things that nobody else saw up until that moment. So we could also argue, I suppose, that when Jesus makes the statement, truly I say to you, that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power, I think we can make the argument that John was the one who was standing there, who went on to live long enough to actually end up on Patmos, to actually see the vision in which he saw the kingdom coming in its power and in its glory. So whether you want to take the preterist interpretation, whether you want to take the understanding that the ones who were standing there, the apostles there, three of them saw the Mount of Transfiguration, so that's the satisfaction of it, or whether you want to say that it was John on the Isle of Patmos receiving the vision of the future kingdom, that that's the satisfaction of it. All I'm trying to prove to you is that the cynics who say that is some kind of evidence that the Bible's not true can't be right, because there are several different ways that you can see that there is a satisfaction to exactly what Jesus said. 
the kingdom doesn't have to have been inaugurated in order for it to have been seen. If you look at the book of Daniel, Daniel describes his visions as, and I saw. And John describes it the same way, and I saw. And Jesus said, there are some standing here who are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom. And that absolutely happened. So as I've argued all the way through, the Bible is credible, the Bible is genuine, the Bible is trustworthy. You can trust it, not only in the details, but you can trust your soul with it. Okay, that's the introduction. Let's start right at chapter 9, verse 1, which I've quoted a couple of times now. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured among them. That Greek word transfigured has a diphthong at the very end of it that I'm not sure I can pronounce. But it is the same Greek word from which we get the word metamorphosis. He was metamorphosized in front of them. In other words, rather than just being flesh and blood, we're going to read that he began to shine and that he was so clean and white, the only thing that the apostles could compare it to was whiter than any soap can get you. He was just clean and white, shining brightly, showing the glory of God. And in that way, his physical visage as we read this morning, or as we heard Steve read, that when he was on the cross, his visage was marred more than any man. That means his physical body, his outward presentation and appearance was marred more than any man. In this case, his outward visage was changed, metamorphosized, if that's a word, transfigured to this. And his garments became radiant, and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What did Peter just do? He equated the three of them. Now let's talk about Moses and Elijah for just a moment. If you're a thoroughgoing Jew, your entire religion is based on whatever Moses has said. You know the Pentateuch. You know the first five books of the Bible. You know the law. You know the ordinances. You know the 613 rules. You understand that whatever Moses said forms a covenant, and you have no choice but to follow that law because that's what God gave Israel through Moses. So whatever Moses says, that's gold. Elijah is the chief of the Old Testament prophets. Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, the one that they are looking forward to, seeing return again in order to bring about the kingdom and the judgment is Elijah. So Elijah looms very large in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is referred to 
as a summation of the whole Old Testament, the phraseology is the law and the prophets. You see it all the way through the New Testament that whenever they're referring to the writing of the Old Testament, they just call it the law and the prophets. Jesus does that repeatedly, the law and the prophets. And he's referring to the first five books of the Bible and then everything that's been written prophetically. Are you familiar with the word Tanakh? Do you know the word Tanakh? Well, the three letters have to do, the T, N, and the K in English letters, have to do with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then the Nevi'im, and then the Ketavim, which basically is a summation of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writing. And that's how the Old Testament's made up. The first five books of the law, there's the prophetic books, and then there's the history books, the poetry books, the writing books. And so to use the phrase, the law and the prophets, sums up the whole of the Old Testament. And now here is the man who embodies the law, Moses, and here is the chief prophet who embodies the prophecies of the Old Testament, Elijah, and they're standing with Jesus, who's glowing white with light and demonstrating his absolute superiority and authority. And they're talking with Jesus. So naturally, Peter would see the three of them and say, okay, Jesus, I've already declared that he's the son of God. He's definitely the Messiah. But now there's Moses and there's Elijah. Apparently, what I'm to learn from this is that the three of them combined make up who we're supposed to listen to. Pay attention now to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. So he wants to build three tabernacles, one for each of them. He's equated the three. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Mark takes the time, and he's the only one who does this. Because remember, Mark is being tutored by Peter. He's the only one who takes the time to tell us because Peter did not know what he was saying. Well, he would get that from Peter. Peter would say, I, I did that. Yeah, I did that because I, I don't know what I'm doing. So Peter does this because he doesn't know what to answer because they had become terrified. Okay, so put shoe leather on it for a minute. Put flesh and blood on it. Jesus, who you've been walking and talking with, who has done some miracles, who has healed some blind people, some lame people are walking Jesus, who has walked on water and drives out demons. Okay, he's definitely, genuinely something special. But then you go up on a mountain with him, and suddenly he's glowing with this sort of majestic, powerful, godlike light. And then Moses and Elijah show up to talk to him. You're not going to stand around going, yeah, that happens every day. That's standard for my life. No, you're going to be terrified by it. What am I a part of here? What is happening right now? What am I looking at and why are we here? So he didn't know what to say. They had become terrified. Verse 7 says, and then a cloud formed and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. The King James says, hear ye him. Okay, that's a big transition. 
It's an enormous transition in their theological thought. Because up until now, listen to Moses. You have to listen to Moses. If you don't listen to Moses, God will curse you. If you don't pay attention to what Moses said, you'll get driven out of your land. You'll be punished. Listen to Moses. And then God speaks to Israel through prophets. So listen to your prophets. The prophets are constantly calling Israel back to repentance. Turn back to the ways of God. Turn back to what God has already prescribed for you through Moses. Listen to your prophets. And now a cloud overshadows them. And the voice of God, the same voice that at his baptism had come down in a spirit like a dove, landed on him, and then a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That voice now says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Okay, so there's Moses. There's Elijah. There's Jesus. And God says, It's him. It's not Moses and Elijah anymore. It's him. Pay attention to him. What does he say? So verse 8. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. So Moses and Elijah show up, talk to Jesus, confer with Jesus, and then a voice from heaven in a dark cloud says... That's my beloved son, hear him. They look up, Moses and Elijah, gone. Only Jesus standing there. The very one who they've been told, listen to him. Pay attention to him. Now all I'm trying to get at is, this is an astounding transition in their theological thought. Up until now, they've been trying, in many ways, to equate the Old Testament and Moses and the traditions and the history of Israel. They've been trying to fit all of that into the mold of Jesus. But of course, you know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus kept saying things that were directly opposite to the law. He said things like, you have heard it said, and then he would quote Moses. And then he said, but I say, and sometimes he would say diametrically different things. Like you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, turn the other cheek. Wait, what? Hold on. That would be the exact opposite because Jesus was laying out a new, better, higher standard, a new, higher, better law because he was the new lawgiver who Moses himself had predicted. So then he's saying these things that are different than what Moses said. So then who should we pay attention to? Should we listen to Moses? Should we pay attention to some of the traditions of Moses? Should we go back to the Old Testament and pay attention to the law and what it says? I mean, after all, God was very clear and sent an angel and gave his law and wrote it with his own hand. Should we take some of that and try to mix that into our Christianity? Should we take some Jesus and some Moses and some of the prophets and mix it all together so we have a big mishmash of all kinds of different biblical ideas and thoughts? Is that what we're supposed to do? Well, God makes it very, very clear. Yes, Jesus says things that are different than the Old Testament, that are different than the Old Covenant, but then God verifies the stuff that Jesus is saying and says, listen to him, pay attention to him. Because when he dies, 
a new covenant goes into effect. And Paul argues, and all the New Testament authors argue, that once that new covenant goes into effect, the old covenant of the law, the old covenant of Sinai, the old covenant of Moses goes away. And the law and the prophets are no longer the methodology through which you get to God. Now Jesus can walk around saying things like, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the center of the religious universe. Your relationship with eternity is dependent on what you think of me. Not rules. Not standards. Not things that are external to you. Not things written on stone. But now by the Holy Spirit of God, it's written on your heart. You're given a new heart, a new spirit. In fact, the argument is you've become a new creature in Christ. And therefore, now you have the spirit of God as a governor on your behavior and on your conscience. And you no longer need the words written on tablets of stone in order for you to approach God. You can now approach God boldly to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. That is a completely different relationship than any Old Testament Jew had via the Sinai covenant. There's a new covenant in effect that gives you relationship one-on-one with God who is not just your master, but now your father and your savior and your shield and your buckler and your defender. He's everything to us and all of that through Christ. So if Christ is in you and you're in Christ, the relationship is settled. You're good. You don't need Moses to get there. Now, Have I read anything into this transfiguration story? Well, the answer is yes. (laughs) I've read a few things into it. But I think that's what was being taught. I think that's why Jesus didn't just say, you guys stay down here. I'm going to go up on the mountain. I'm going to be transfigured and I'm going to have a chat with Moses and Elijah. But you guys stay down here. Because that's the way it was when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. Everybody was told, stay away. Put up borders. Don't even let a dog come near here or he has to be driven through with a dart. This is a holy mountain because God is on it. Nobody gets to come up here except Moses. Okay, so now Jesus is going up to commune with Moses and Elijah and even God shows up in a cloud and he invites people up with him. Why? Why did he take Peter, John, and James up with him? Because he wanted to demonstrate to them The very thing I'm describing here, that now he is the center of the religious universe, that now he is the way to God, and that Moses and Elijah no longer are the authorities over your heart, mind, or conscience. Have any of you in your Christian life ever had anybody attempt to impose Moses on your Christian conscience? (gasps) Really? No one? Just me and Tom? We're, we're the only ones? Just Tom? And over and over and over. And the legalism that people attempt to put on you, I think, is just a demonstration that they don't really believe that Jesus is enough. They really don't believe that Jesus and his sacrifice and his death and his blood is adequate. 
they got to put something on you. I think I told you about years ago how uh, I had a preacher write to me and say, uh, Jim, you, you can't preach that radical grace that you preach. And then he said, you got to put some law on people. Some. you got to put some law on people. And then his argument was, and this is a quote, because if you don't, they'll go crazy on you. And I thought, well, yeah, that would be true if we were talking about unregenerate people. If you take unregenerate people and then don't put any rules on them, yes, they'll go crazy. That's their natural sinful tendency. They're going to go crazy. But if people already have the Holy Spirit of God inside them, acting as the encourager and the governor on their behavior and the the source of their understanding of their relationship and bringing the word of God alive and the word of Christ alive, giving them a new heart, taking out their stony heart of flesh. If that's what's occurring in people, then no amount of external law is going to help them because they already have everything necessary for their full, complete, eternal salvation. What good are my extra rules going to do you? Okay, you're on your way to heaven. Okay, you're already saved. Okay, you're already redeemed, blood-bought. You're guaranteed. Your name's in the Lamb's book of... But, but I say you got to wear a tie when you come to church. And so far, I'm the only safe person in this room. (laughs) You just start making up rules. uh, Women have to wear skirts that come down three inches below their knees, minimum. And you ladies that are wearing pants... None of you are saved. I'm just making up rules. But what good does that do you? If you're already saved, you're already redeemed, you're already blood you're already on your way to heaven, your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. What good do my rules do you? None whatsoever. So then extend that. What are the rules of the Old Testament and the rules of Moses and the 613 ordinances? What do they add to the fact that you are already saved? Nothing. They had they nothing. So can you see then what Jesus was trying to demonstrate by taking Peter, John, and James up on the mountain with him, and then they see Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. They try to equate the three. God intervenes at that moment and says, no, hear him. This one's my son. These other two were not my son. That's my son. Listen to him. And the other two disappear. What else can God be trying to teach these three apostles except the superiority of Christ over the law and the prophets? So, reading again at verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain... He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. Mark has begun, we saw it last week, Mark has begun recording that Jesus is just stating plainly, not doing it in parables, not doing it in any kind of riddles. Jesus just keeps stating plainly, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the Jews, and I'm going to die. Three days later... I'll be alive. And Mark keeps recording that they didn't get it. 
They didn't understand what he was talking about. In fact, Peter rebuked him to his face about it. And so Jesus ended up saying, get behind me, Satan, because you don't cherish the things of God. You care about the things of the flesh. So they were worried about an earthly kingdom. They were worried about the immediate appearance of the kingdom. Jesus becomes the king. We become right-hand men to the king. He's a great king. Not only can he bring money out of fish's mouths, but he can give us bread every day from a couple loaves and fishes. He's the best king ever. And they wanted it to happen right then. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. Well, that shakes up their entire plan. And then he says, and I'm going to live again. Well, now they're completely confused. So Jesus says it again. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement that he's going to rise from the dead and started discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. So the debate is on. What does he mean by that? By the way, there are still people to this very day in theological circles arguing about what rising from the dead means. People who aren't really sure what that resurrection thing is all about. Does it mean physical resurrection? Especially in Revelation 20. Oh, the first resurrection. Is that real resurrection? Or is that just spiritual resurrection? Is that just when you come to the realization of who Christ is and it's like rising from the dead in a spiritual way? It's still a big debate. Christ said, I'm going to die. He meant physical death. But then three days later, I'm getting up again. And one of the most amazing parts to me of this entire story is that later when we read about Jesus' resurrection, early on Sunday morning, that when he comes out of the tomb, there's nobody standing there. You would think at least one of the 11 would have said, you know, this is three days. <laughs> you know, he said he was going to be alive in three days. Uh, he did everything else really, really well. Uh, I wonder what the chances are that he's going to get up again. You know, just out of curiosity, you would think we ought to just at least go check. Why didn't they go? Because there was a Roman guard there guarding the body to protect the disciples from stealing the body. And so they were afraid of Rome. And so they stayed away from the grave. And so Jesus got up and there's nobody there. They're worried about their flesh. They're worried about their skin. He's worried about eternal things. So he says to them again, an eternal reality that is predicted in the Old Testament that is clear that this is what Messiah is going to do. He's going to come and die and he's going to take the sins upon himself that are going to save all the people that God has given to him. And yet, as he describes that, they don't get it. And they seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. So, they asked him, now this might seem like a very odd question, but actually it's very logical. The problem is we have a 21st century Gentile mindset. But for a first century thoroughgoing Jew, this is a really logical question. They now see, after the Mount of Transfiguration, after all the miracles, they now see who he is. He's clearly, obviously the Messiah to come. There's no more question in their mind. 
that's who he is. The cloud has come and said, that's my son. So they're real clear about, okay, that's the son of God. He's the Messiah to come. But wait a minute. There's this prophecy in the Old Testament that needs to be fulfilled. Turn backwards just a little bit to the very last two verses of the Old Testament. The last two verses of the book of Malachi. In fact, go to Matthew 1.1 and turn back a page and you'll be there. The very last prophecy in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, the last two verses say, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. So here's this guarantee from God. Here's this promise that the day of the Lord is coming. But before it does, I'm going to send Elijah back again. Among the Orthodox Jews, it's fairly common when they have their feasts. It's fairly common for them to set a place where no one sits and they say it's for Elijah because they're so expecting the return of Elijah because once Elijah returns then the day of the Lord comes and then the kingdom comes and then Israel is regathered and everything is restored to the way it was supposed to be so the first thing they're looking for isn't the return of Christ they're looking for the return of Elijah Okay, so knowing that, back in Mark 9, they see that they are with the very Son of God, the genuine Messiah, but where's Elijah? They're having a theological dilemma now. But, but doesn't Elijah come first? So they ask him. And they asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, Jesus' answer is really interesting and kind of multi-layered. Because the first thing he says is, Elijah does come first and restore all things. In other words, the prophecy of Malachi is valid. That's going to happen. There's no question about that. But when Jesus was on the planet during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, did the day of the Lord occur? No. Did the time of tribulation, time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again, did that occur? No. No. It's been 2,000 years and it hasn't happened yet. So what was the promise of Malachi? That before the great and terrible day of the Lord, God was going to send Elijah. Well, they conflated all of that. And they believed that what was going to happen, this is very typical of the Jewish mindset, what was going to happen was Elijah was going to come and then was going to be the great and terrible day of the Lord all at once. And then the kingdom was going to be inaugurated and then David, their greater prince, was going to come back and rule over them. And they were finally going to see the Messiah to come, the deliverer to come. So they asked the question, where's Elijah? And he says, Elijah does come and restore all things. In other words, it just hasn't happened yet. I'm here on the planet right now, but the reason I'm on the planet is not to establish the kingdom. You might recall that at one point, the Jews tried to make him king by force. 
They so wanted him to be the king. They so wanted him to deliver Israel from their oppressors, Rome. And they'd been under oppression from a whole series of kingdoms. And so they're so anxious to be delivered from that, they decide, this is it. Let's just make him king whether he wants to or not. So we can become an independent nation and we can fight off all our enemies. And he refuses it. He refuses to be made king at that point because that's not the reason he came to the planet. What's the reason he came to the planet the first time? Everything Steve read this morning out of Isaiah. He came to do the very thing he keeps saying to his apostles. He came to die. He came to rise again. And then he came to sail off into the blue and sit at the right hand of God where he's going to remain until the restitution, the restoration of all things. Then there's going to be a kingdom. Matthew 24, he talks about time to come, a future return in which there's going to be a time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. There's going to be a kingdom established. There's going to be a regathering of the tribes. All of that is going to happen, but not then, not 2,000 years ago. So that's the reason that Elijah did not come first before Christ. But then Christ says something really interesting. He says Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written about the Son of Man? What's written about me? Here you guys are asking questions about Elijah coming first. You seem to be really up on that scripture. What do the scriptures say about me? What do the scriptures say have to happen to me? How is it written that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Are you familiar with those verses? Do you know that part? That's also predicted in the Old Testament. So this whole conversation began with him saying, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to raise again. They have a big conversation among themselves about what does he mean by that? What's he talking about? And then they think, wait, I've got a theological dilemma. Doesn't it say that Elijah comes first? And he says, well, yeah, so what about me? What does the text say about me? It says, that the Son of Man is going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And then he answers the Elijah question by saying, But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it's written of him. What's he talking about now? Well, the other writers tell us that at that moment he was referring to John the Baptist. Turn over to the book of Luke. You're in Mark right now. Just go forward one book. Chapter 1 of the book of Luke. We're going to start reading at verse 13. We're reading about Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall give him the name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. 
And it is he who will go before him, before Christ, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn back the hearts of the fathers, back to the children. Well, that's one of the things that Malachi said Elijah was going to do when he came. And he's going to turn the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, let me ask a series of questions here. Think through this with me. Did the angel say to Zacharias, you're going to give birth to Elijah? No. Elizabeth is going to have a child. He'll be Elijah. Did he say that? No. No, he said you're going to have a child who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Several years ago, I preached a message here. If you want to go back and look it up in the archives, and good luck to you. But I preached on what I called the Elijah connection. And I showed, I demonstrated all the verses in the Bible that have to do with this ongoing influence of the spirit of Elijah. But it starts right away. Elijah is walking with Elisha, the sons of the prophets, the sons from the school of the prophets, Say to Elisha, don't you know that today your master is going to be taken up from you? And he tells them to be quiet. And then Elijah keeps telling Elisha, go back, go back. I'm going to go on. I'm going to go forward. Elisha says, I'm not leaving you. I'm staying with you. Finally, Elijah says, ask what you will. What do you want? And Elisha says, I want a double portion of the spirit that's on you. Elijah says, that's not mine to give, but... If when you see me rise up into the sky, if you see that happen, then know that God is going to honor your request. You're going to get a double portion of the spirit that's on me. And then sure enough, the chariot of the Lord comes down. Elijah steps into the chariot. He's carried away into the heavens. Elisha's left on the ground. The cloak falls off of Elijah. Elisha picks up his mantle, his cloak. And then he does the exact same miracle Elijah did. He strikes the water of the Jordan and the water parts, demonstrating that now the power is on Elisha that used to be on Elijah. Okay, so was Elisha at that point, was he Elijah? No, No, they're still two separate people. But did he have the spirit and power of Elijah? Yes. Yes, he did. Okay, well, the same thing is told to Zechariah that your child is going to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but he's not necessarily going to be Elijah himself. Demonstrated by the fact that these two stories line up right behind each other, and Peter, John, and James have just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they just saw Moses and Elijah. And you'll notice that none of them said We saw Moses and John the Baptist. They know John the Baptist. They've seen John the Baptist. They know what John the Baptist looks like. They may not necessarily know what Elijah looks like, but they know what John the Baptist looks like. And whoever it was that was standing there with Moses and Jesus didn't look like that. He looked like Elijah. And they recognized him as Elijah. So again, I'm trying to demonstrate that there is a distinction between Elijah the person who Jesus says is still going to come. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah's still going to come. 
the prophecy of Malachi is still true. That's going to happen. But since you asked whether Elijah comes first, the spirit and power of Elijah did come first in the person of John the Baptist. See all that? In other words, big picture now, in other words, the Bible's true. The prophets are true. What they said is true. It's all going to happen. It's all going to be satisfied and is being satisfied according to Christ. Because not a word of God's word can fall to the ground without accomplishing what it's meant to accomplish. So, have I confused anybody with the Elijah connection? No. Is anybody perplexed by that? Okay, so that's what he explains to them in verse 12. Elijah does come first. That's a future thing. And restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. They did to him whatever they wished. They locked him up. They put him in jail and they took his head. Just as it is written of him. Then we read the next bit of narrative. When they came back to the disciples... They saw a large crowd around them, around the disciples, and some scribes arguing with them. And immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed, they were awestruck, and they began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? He has already warned them to be careful of the leaven of the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders in Jerusalem. He's already warned them to be careful about what they're going to hear from them. So naturally, Jesus would ask his disciples, what are you talking to them about? So one person who was in the crowd answered him and said, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground and he foams at the mouth. and He grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. All of which, by the way, is the way I typically sleep. <laughs> For anyone who wants. Whenever it seizes him, it dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. He answered them. This is, again, something we're seeing in the character of Jesus. Mark keeps bringing it up that Jesus keeps sighing with heavy sighs and demonstrating his frustration with his apostles and with this generation, this generation that is unfaithful and unbelieving. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, Immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. Just seeing him. All the boy did was see Jesus and the demon inside him caused him to start convulsing and throwing him to the ground. So he began falling to the ground and he began rolling about and foaming at the mouth. And so he asked the father, Jesus asked, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. 
I think that question is inspired by the fact that none of the apostles could drive him out. So now the father is saying, they can't do it. If you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus answered, and I think slightly sarcastically here. Jesus answers and says, if I can? By the way, I think my sarcasm is one of my more godlike qualities. <laughs> Just mentioning that. Jesus said to him, if you can, I, I don't know how else to read that. I, I guess I could put a different inflection on it and read it as, if you can, I, I don't. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Now that word believes right there, I keep saying, I have to keep stating it so that we understand it, is the word pistuo. It's the Greek verb form of the word pistis, which is the word translated faith. In other words, the, the point of pointing that out is that Jesus doesn't leave open the possibility that you can just believe whatever you want, and as long as you believe something, then all things are possible. He defines faith as confidence in him, and if you have that kind of faith and are exercising that kind of faith in him, well then, all things are possible. If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, and I absolutely love the second half of this sentence, <laughs> help thou mine unbelief. In other words, I believe, Help me to believe. I don't think there's a person in this room who doesn't feel that. Amen. Yeah, I do. I do believe. Yes, I believe. I believe, Christ. I believe what you did. I believe that 2,000 years ago you finished the work. I believe that your full work of atonement and propitiation was satisfactory to the Father. And I believe that I am right now called and justified and glorified. I believe all that. Kind of. I believe that I'm ready to rest my soul on that and launch off this planet on that I really hope I believe it the way I think I believe it because Christ who is a complete savior not only is the author and finisher of your faith he is not only the one who implanted faith in you and sustains it in you to the end he is also the one who is going to make up for those deficiencies and lacking in the faith as you exercise it. He is the one who is not only going to save you utterly and completely, he's going to make sure that when you get to heaven, the trading commodity of faith that you trade for righteousness is full and complete in you. In other words, I believe he helps my unbelief. He makes up for my insufficiency. He understands that I'm just flesh. And be honest for a moment. Aren't you glad that's the case? Because if it was left up to your consistency, if it was left up to your might, your power, your conviction, if it was left up to you to have absolute, perfect, continuous faith, how many of you are going to heaven? 
Oh, I should take that down, probably. Yeah, we're, we're all coming up short. We're all failing if it's left to us. So this man had the exact right answer, and I think that's why Mark included the answer. He said, yes, I do believe, and I want my son to be healed. Ever since he was a child, he's been tortured by this demon. And it throws him in the water, and it throws him in the fire, and it's trying to destroy my child. And I brought him to your disciples because I believe, and they couldn't do it. So now if you can do anything, please help us. Yeah, I believe. That's why I'm standing here in front of you. I believe. But if it's not enough, you help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. That's an important phrase. Not only come out of him, but get out and stay out. So how much option did the demon have after that point? None. None. He had to get out and he had to stay out. And after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, the demon came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. Yeah, that was the plan. That was what Jesus was trying to do. You think this is bad? Wait till I get done with him. Yeah, he's just got a demon. I'm going to kill him. I'll show you. So they cry out, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. And he got up. And when he had come into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately and saying, why couldn't we cast that demon out? We tried. We gave it a shot. Why couldn't we do it? And he answered, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Some early translations say by prayer and fasting. What we know for certain is whatever spiritual preparation was required in order to drive out that kind of demon, they weren't up to the task. They weren't sufficient for it. Christ was fully sufficient for it. This also shows you, by the way, that there's different kinds of demons because they were able to drive out some demons, but they couldn't drive out this demon. This demon was more powerful than other demons, apparently. So that shows you that there is an actual pecking order. It's why Paul would say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but then he didn't just say we wrestle against demons and devils generally. He said, we wrestle against principalities, powers. Okay, he's delineating authority now. The rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. He understood that there was a whole level, if I could use that word, that there is a whole pecking order among the demonic powers. And he delineated them. You got five more minutes because really to wrap up everything we've heard this morning, we need to read just a little bit further. Go for it. Anybody else? Does he speak for the group? Go for it. Okay, good. That's two now. Anybody who just has to be somewhere, see you later. From there, they began to go through Galilee, 
and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it because it's leading up to his ultimate death that's why he's telling people don't say anything yet after I rise from the dead then you can talk about these things don't say anything yet wasn't his time yet but he was teaching his disciples and telling them the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he has been killed he will rise three days later it couldn't be more plain couldn't be more specific he is telling them time and time again I'm going to die I'm going to rise three days later verse 32 Mark says but they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask him they didn't want to look stupid again last time Peter rebuked him for it Peter got called Satan to his face so nobody wants to do that so no one's going to ask him about it but they don't understand what he means when he says I have all this power I have all this authority you saw me up there glowing white you've seen me driving out demons You've seen the kind of authority I have over rain and wind. You've seen me walking on water. And yet, he says, he's going to be delivered over to men and killed. And they think, how? Who's powerful enough to kill you? And actually, the answer is nobody. Which is why Jesus says, no man takes my life from me. But I have this command from my father. And I have the power to lay my life down, and I have the power to take it up again. So he didn't lose any authority or any power or any control when he was killed. But it was an absolute necessity that he be killed for the sins of the people who God gave him since before the foundation of the world. So he says the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand that statement. And they were afraid to ask him. Okay, now, this is, this is just so indicative of what kind of men we're talking about here. They're still so lost in their flesh. After he has told them this, he has just explained to them time and time again the key event in all human history. The Son of God takes on flesh, comes to the planet, is killed, raises three days later, and that event secures the salvation of all the people God has chosen to save. That is the key, most vital event that ever happened in human history. Do you know what it inspires in them? They argue about who among them is the greatest. I think we know the answer to the question. It would be Jesus. He's the greatest. But they start arguing about, well, you know, the kingdom's going to come eventually, maybe after he raises from the dead, which is why at the beginning of the book of Acts, they ask him, will you at this time deliver the kingdom again to Israel? They're still <coughs> expecting the kingdom to happen immediately because as soon as it happens, if he's the king, they're set for life. They're the right-hand men. So, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, because on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. 
That's their reaction to, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. Do you think there was any possibility, and I'm just speculating here, do you think there's any possibility that they thought, you know, he might actually be killed? We're not sure about that rise again thing. But if we're going to keep this movement going, somebody's got to step up. Someone's got to be the great one. And so let's argue and discuss about who's going to be the great one once he's gone. Sandy, you had your hand up. Wasn't there another translation that said that this sand was hidden from them? Yeah, over and over it said that they don't get it because their hearts are hardened. But I think that that demonstrates, proves, that natural men by themselves can be told the absolute truth without hiding, without parables, without riddles. You can stand in front of a person with your open Bible and you can tell them the absolute authoritative truth of who Christ is. And after their flesh, they can't get it. They don't understand it. I mean, Jesus himself standing talking to these men after demonstrating who he is, after showing them all the miracles, which, by the way, kind of answers all the folks who would say, if I could just see a miracle, then I'd really believe. No, you wouldn't. They saw plenty of miracles. They still couldn't get it, still couldn't believe. So, so you know, the, the first of the five points that we hold on to, that men are totally depraved, is demonstrated right here. Human beings after their flesh, even being told by the very Son of God what the truth is, can't understand it. So what is it going to take? It's going to take the Holy Spirit of God and being made a new creation. Then you're going to get it, which is why the Bible uses words like enlightened and regenerated and born again. And you have to be made all over again in order to be able to understand these kinds of things. It was true of them. It's true of us. Good comment, though. So sitting down, even though none of them would tell him what they were talking about, he knew anyway. When he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? He wasn't looking for information. So he said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. There's the answer. Okay, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Okay, he just said something really important. He said, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all. And a servant to all. That is kingdom greatness in the heavenly mindset. The more you do for other people, the more you decrease so that he increases. That's what greatness looks like in the heavenly realms. Here on earth, that's not what we think greatness is. We think greatness is work real hard, get all the money, stick it in your ears and tell everybody to bug off. You know, oh, I'm a self-made man. I have all the power. I have all the authority. I'm in charge here. I'm, I'm great. It's not what greatness is according to Jesus. Genuine greatness is service. Being the servant to everyone. Which, by the way, Paul would pick up in Philippians 2 and say, regard every man as better than yourself. And don't look on your own things, but look on the things of others. So this is essential Christianity 
And yet I, I would argue that it's oftentimes overlooked as being an important component of what Christianity is. So to give them a demonstration, he took a child and he set the child before him and he took the child into his arms and he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but the God who sent me. There was a, a church that I was part of for a while where whenever anybody would come and say, uh, I feel the need to teach. Uh, I believe I'm a teacher. I, I'm a preacher. I have that burning in my belly. I need to get in front of people and open a Bible. I need to teach. They would say, okay, the children need to be taught. You can start with third grade. And the people who were serious would take that job. The people who weren't serious would say, no, 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 no. I mean teach adults. I need to teach grown-up people. I'm educated. I know what I'm talking about. I need to teach. You know, the first year that I was asked to preach at the conference in Lexington, 16 years ago, Elder Ward called me and he said, we're going to have you teach this year. And I thought, oh, great. I'm finally going to get up on the platform. I'm finally going to teach the congregation. I'm he said, you're going to teach the youth on Wednesday. I went, oh, no. That's a, what? Teach the youth? So the collection of all the kids that make up the Sunday school program that's going on, I had to teach them one night. And I learned real quick that I had to keep the banter going because the moment I stop, they start chattering. And they start getting bit. They're hard to teach. They're difficult to teach because their minds are going 90 miles an hour and none of it is what I'm talking about. They just want the old bald guy with the ponytail to get done and get off. And so that taught me a lot about what Jesus is saying here. If you want to be great, then accept children and accept people as children. Make yourself servant to other people, even to children. And if you accept a child in my name, then you've accepted me. If you're good to children because you bear my name, then you're accepted by me. And if you're accepted by me, you're accepted by God. So how much ego does that leave for you in the midst of your Christianity? That'd be none. There's no room for ego in Christianity. There's no room for pride or arrogance. There's only room for service, kindness, grace, long-suffering, and just being good to each other. I wanted to get there this morning, and I know I kept you a little long, but hey, we got there. I wanted you to see how the apostles were told time and time again, I'm going to die, but when it came time for them to discuss stuff, they wanted to know who was going to be the greatest because they just could not understand the things that Jesus was saying, and yet he was telling them the absolute truth that all the prophets had predicted he was going to die for the sins of his people. And they just couldn't understand it. But here's the final point. You will notice that their lack of understanding and their lack of faith didn't stop him from doing what he was going to do anyway. 
He was here to do it anyway, and he didn't need human cooperation to get it done. He didn't need anybody's faith to get it done. In fact, he's the author and the finisher of the faith. He's the one that helps the faith. He was not waiting around for anybody to rubber stamp him or accredit him or say, I have faith in you to do these things. Nobody understood what it was that he was doing, and yet he came and did it because he was obedient to his father. Shall we apply that real quick? It doesn't matter if people understand what you're doing or why you're doing it or what you believe or why you believe. It only matters that you do it in obedience to the father. Amen. Okay, I won't get all preachy about it because I've talked long enough. But all of that, I think, is right there in Jesus' words. Are there any questions about that? Yes, sir. Can you tell us any denominations that are preterist or is preterism kind of spread around different denominations? Yeah, um, you will find in most of the Reformed churches and most Presbyterian churches, especially and even Catholic churches, churches that emphasize amillennialism, the further extent of amillennialism is preterism. So it's quite common in there. Years ago, I used to write for uh, Sound of Grace. It was a chat group kind of thing, but then it was a magazine they put out. and I wrote for their commentary series. And so there were amillennialists in the group, and there were premillennialists in the group, and we used to banter back and forth with each other. But every once in a while, we'd get infiltrated by preterists, and then the premills and the amills would get on one side together to fight against the preterists, because preterism just doesn't work. You have to read so much into the text to get there that uh, I'm obviously not a preterism fan. Did that answer your question? Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Anything else? All right, we're good. All right, Mike is going to come and close our service for us. Before we do that, let's all say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye, Daniel. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His Sovereign Grace.